Now today, friends, we come to another one of the prison epistles. Last time we were in the New Testament, we looked at Ephesians. Now, this epistle to the Philippians was written at the same time as Ephesians, and it was one of the four epistles that we mentioned at that time that are called prison epistles because they were written by Paul when he was in prison in Rome. We have Ephesians, and now Philippians, and the next will be Colossians, and then the little epistle of Philemon will be coming along later. Now, this epistle that Paul has written to the Philippians is one of the loveliest epistles that he ever wrote. It's a lovely epistle, and it contains no harsh criticism of the church in Philippi at all. And everything seemed to be just fine. And he was very close to these folk. I expect, judging from the epistles, that Paul was closer to the church in Philippi than any other church he founded. And these people in Philippi seemed to have loved him more than any other church loved him. And as a result, this epistle is choice indeed. Now, Paul went to Philippi on his second missionary journey. Actually, he was out on his second missionary journey. You will recall that he and Barnabas had had a division because of a difference of opinion concerning John Mark. And, of course, Paul changed in his viewpoint of John Mark. And later on, he was able to say of him, "'Bring John Mark with you. He's profitable to me for the ministry.'" But at this time, he was not even about to take John Mark with him on the second missionary journey because, you remember, he had shown a yellow streak up and down his back and had run home to Mama, apparently, when they faced the interior of Asia Minor. And here was where Paul was going again. And so he took Silas with him, and Barnabas took John Mark. And then Paul went over the Galatian country. And he visited the churches founded on the first missionary journey. Then he attempted, apparently, according to Dr. Luke's record, he attempted to go down into Asia. And the chief city down there was Ephesus. And he was forbidden to go down there. We are told that they were forbidden of the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now, that area was to be opened by Paul and to be opened later on. But at this time, it was a closed door for him, and he could not go south. So he naturally thought that he was to go north. So he attempted to go into Bithynia that was along the southern coast of the Black Sea. And there was a very large population there, and a large Jewish population was in that area as there were many colonies of them in what we would call today modern Turkey. But in that day, this was called Bithynia. And it was a great resort area. It had a delightful climate, very candidly. It was a climate that in summertime could not be surpassed. Now, again, we're told that when he attempted to go there, but the Spirit allowed them not. That's Acts 16, 7. Or, as our translation says, the Spirit suffered them not. So again in the north, there was a roadblock put up. Now, Paul 
cannot go south. He cannot go north. And he's come from the east. So there's only one direction for him to go. And therefore, it was not Horace Greeley of the New York Sun who first said, Go west, young man, go west. But it was the Holy Spirit speaking to the apostle Paul and Silas to go west. It's the only direction that's left to them. And so they headed west and came to Troas, and they waited for orders there. Now, I'm sure that had you been in Troas, the city of Troy as we know it at that time, and you had met Paul, and you said, Brother Paul, well, what are you doing here? Well, he said, I'm out on my second missionary journey. Well, we would have said, where are you going? He said, I don't know. And you and I, you know, being rock rib conservatives and Bible believers, and I think that's the proper way to be, and 19 centuries removed, we would have all the data that comes afterward. We'd said, why, Brother Paul, you mean to tell me you're the great apostle to the Gentiles and you don't know where you're going? And I think he would have said, yes, you're right. I don't know where I'm going. And we would have been amazed because, you know, we today talk so much about the leading of the Lord. I get a little weary as I hear some people talking about the leading of the Lord. Why, they go down to the street corner, and there is a shopping area to the left and one to the right, and the way they tell it, and the way I hear it, goes something like this. I got down to the corner, I didn't know what shopping area to go to, and the Lord led me to go to a certain one. Well, I don't know. I don't have leading like that. And some of them can even beat that. They can tell you, I prayed about it, and two days later, I went down to the corner, and I knew exactly where to turn. I turned to the right that time because I felt the Lord led me. Well, again, may I say, that disturbs me because I have never had leading that why it goes like that. And I'm always grateful to turn to the Word of God and find out in the book of Ruth, when she came out of Bethlehem that morning, she didn't know whose field to go in, but she did go in the right field. Spirit of God led, but she didn't know at the time. And Paul here didn't know where to go. And I get in that position quite frequently. Now, Paul's waiting there for orders. Then he's given the vision of the man of Macedonia. It would take that to call that man out of Asia Minor, which was really the center of the Roman Empire. And that day, actually, Greek culture had moved into what we know as Asia Minor, modern Turkey. Actually, that was becoming the headquarters, the great heartthrob of the Roman Empire. And Paul hadn't any idea, as I see it, as I read the record, of going into Europe. But he had a vision of the man of Macedonia, and it took that to move him. And he said, come over and help us. Well, Paul crossed over then. And when he came into Europe, you will recall that he went first to Philippi, and he ministered there. And I've always been grateful to God that he sent Paul into Europe at that time, because my ancestors were divided, the two families, in two different places. One family came out of Germany, and evidently that family at that particular time were living in the forest, half-naked, eating raw meat. 
in Germany at that time. They were really savages. They were really pagan. In fact, they were real pagan. The other family were over in Scotland, and that's my father's family. And they were over there, and if you go to England, you'll notice Hadrian built a wall across England there. And you know the reason he built that wall? It was to keep those crude, dirty, heathen, filthy Scotch savages out of the Roman Empire. They didn't want them. Can you imagine that at that particular time? And that's where the two families were. I have always been grateful that God sent Paul into Europe and not over into China. Because, may I say to you, later on, someone got to my ancestors over there because Paul had come in that direction and gave them the gospel. And the word of God came to them. I've been grateful for this crossing. So Paul came to Philippi. That was the beachhead. That's where he began his ministry. And when he got over, though, to Philippi, he had actually, I think, rather a disappointment in a way. He found out that the man of Macedonia was a woman by the name of Lydia. Lydia, who had come from Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple, quite a businesswoman, apparently. And she had opened up a branch store there in Philippi. She was holding prayer meetings down by the river. I do not know how much those prayer meetings had to do with the Spirit of God sending Paul to Europe, but I'm sure it had something to do. She was the first convert. Then we know that there was a jailer there, and he was a brutal fellow, or he wouldn't have had that job. And he was led to Christ and his family. And there were many others that came to a saving knowledge of Christ. And that church was closer to Paul. They followed him during all of his missionary journeys. They were interested in him. They loved him. And Paul loved them. It was to this church Paul said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Now, he didn't say that to the Corinthians, and he didn't say that to the Galatians, but he did say it here to the Philippians. I thank my God for you, because he says, every time anybody reminds me of you, I just thank God for you. They were wonderful people there, and Paul loved them, and they loved Paul. Now, they lost sight, though, of the apostle Paul when he was arrested in Jerusalem. And for two years, they didn't know what had happened to him. And then word was brought to them that Paul was in jail in Rome. Well, I tell you, their hearts went out to him. I'm sure they called a prayer meeting. And they took up an offering to send to the apostle Paul and then to send their sympathy and they sent as the messenger their pastor, Epaphroditus. And he came bringing a gift and the message. Well, Paul wrote this epistle to the Philippians as a sort of a thank you note. And he doesn't have any doctrine to correct as he did with the Galatians. And he didn't have any conduct to correct as he did with the Corinthians. It's just a lovely letter, and the subject is Christian experience. Now, it doesn't mean you and I experience everything here, but it means that we should experience everything this year. And I'm sure when Epaphroditus arrived, Paul says, How are things going up in the church in Philippi? And Epaphroditus said, Well, you know, they're going fine. Well, Paul says, You having any problems at all? 
Well, he said, we've had a little problem. And there was. There were two women in the church that were not speaking to each other. They were having a little problem. Paul didn't get to that till you get to the fourth chapter. And over there, he says, I beseech you, odious, and beseech syndicate, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, they weren't of the same mind. They had had some problem, some difficulty. I've often wondered what it was. I've thought maybe it could have been like this. Mrs. Euodius, she probably was president of the Missionary Society. And Mrs. Syntyche, she could have been president of the choir. And both of those groups thought that they had the church parlor for Tuesday night. There'd been a little confusion there about the dates. And both groups arrived at the same time. And I want to tell you, Miss Euodius told Miss Syntyche what she thought. And Miss Syntyche had the same kind of thoughts. And they had the same kind of thoughts, but they were in a little different direction, of course. And so these two women were cool to each other. The old Scotch elder was called upon to read the fourth chapter of Philippians one night. He was an uneducated man. His pronunciation was terrible of this verse, but I tell you, his interpretation was great. He read it like this, "...I beseech odious, and I beseech soon touchy, that they be of the same mind in the Lord." Now, friends, in a church, when you have one that is soon touchy and one that is odious, and they, you know, rub one against the other, sparks are going to fly. And that's what apparently happened here. Now, it wasn't serious. Paul says, I just beseech them that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, that apparently was the only thing. And then later on in that chapter, Paul thanks them for their gift. But what he writes about is Christian experience. Now, here in chapter 1, you have the philosophy of Christian experience or Christian living. I like that better. You have the philosophy for Christian living. Then in chapter 2, you have the pattern for Christian living. And in chapter 3, you have the prize for Christian living. And in chapter 4, you have the power for Christian living. So that you have before us now a very wonderful epistle. And it is one of the present epistles carried back by Epaphroditus to the church in Philippi. Now... I want us to just get our foot in the door here today. And chapter 1, we have the philosophy for Christian living. And you have here in the first two verses the introduction to the epistle. And then for verses 3 to 11, you have Paul's tender feeling for the Philippians. There's nothing quite like it. Now, you find Paul having a real concern and love for the other churches but nothing like this. And then in verses 12 to 20, you have bonds and afflictions further the gospel. And then verses 21 to 30, in life or death. This is a wonderful epistle. Now, we're not up there seated in the heavenlies as we were in Ephesians when we began. We're just going to get right down here where the rubber meets the road. He's going to start right off, right down here with the nitty-gritty, where we live today, 
and this is good for your neighborhood and my neighborhood, your church and my church. Now, let me begin this because it's actually a very wonderful epistle, and we want to spend some time in this epistle to get something of the sweetness of it. He says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Now, this is quite wonderful. It's Paul and Timotheus. Now, again, I must call your attention to it. Paul brings this young preacher, puts him right by the side of him, encouraging him. This young man, Timothy, Paul loved him. He was his son in the Lord, as he calls him, and he was interested in him. Now, I get letters from former students and from many folk that in my ministry over the years have come to a knowledge of Christ somewhere where I was a pastor. And you don't know what that does for you today. And I just feel like, very frankly, all of these are rather my children. I've got a whole lot of children scattered around over this world today. And I love them in the Lord. I feel like putting every one of them, Paul and Timotheus, Vernon McGee and all of them, I want to put them right along with us today. And I think it was a marvelous gesture on the part of Paul to put this young preacher right down by the side of him. And Paul's name has come down through the centuries. And everywhere you hear about Paul, you're going to hear about Timothy. Paul saw to that. How wonderful. Now he calls themselves the servants of Jesus Christ. Now, back in Galatians, you remember, my, he says, Paul, an apostle, he rests on his apostleship and defends it. And you find him doing that again and again. He does it with the Corinthians. But here... He loved these Philippians. He didn't have to defend himself because they loved him. And they knew he was an apostle. They had all been led to the Lord by him. Paul and Timotheus, we're the servants of Jesus Christ. And he takes this humble place, the place that belonged to him. And he says to all the saints. Now, he's not writing to one little clique in the Philippian church. He's not writing to Miss Syntyche's group. Artemis Euodius' group. He's writing to all the saints. And every believer is the same. In fact, the human family is divided up in just two groups, saints and ain'ts. And if you ain't a saint, you ain't, you see. Saints are believers in Christ. And they're not that because of their conduct, but because of their position in Christ, which simply means this. Anything that is saint or holy, the same word here, means separated for the use of God, that which belongs to God. Why, the old pots and pans in the tabernacle were called holy vessels. They were sure beaten and battered. Didn't look holy, but they were. Why? They were set aside for the use of God. And that should be the position of every child of God, set aside for the use of God to all the saints. Now, they're in Christ Jesus. Now, I've dwelt on that word so many times. I'm not going to dwell on it today. But what does it mean to be saved? It means to be in Christ Jesus. And you get there by faith in Christ. Now, Holy Spirit baptizes you 
into the body of Christ, and you're put in Christ by the Spirit of God, by what we know as the baptism. They are in Christ Jesus, but they're at Philippi. And actually, it doesn't make any difference where they're at. That sentence is not grammatical, but it's sure true. Where are you at today? You may be at Los Angeles. You may be way back yonder in Duluth, Minnesota. You could be way down in Boca Raton, Florida. It won't make any difference where you are at. It's whether you're in Christ Jesus. That's the important thing. Now he says, with the bishops and deacons. Now, the very interesting thing here, and I think probably this might be the good place to mention, bishops, the word there refers to the office. That's the word shepherd. And elders refer to the individuals that they should be men that are mature. They are the same. One refers to the office, the other to the individuals. And deacons are, should be spiritual men performing a secular service. Now, in verse 2, he says, "...grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father." from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've called attention to this before in other epistles, and we'll have it before us again. It was Paul's form of address to all the churches. And he took two very commonplace words in that day. Grace, in the Greek, is charis, and it was a form of greeting in the Roman world of that day. I'm sure that any place in Asia Minor, had you walked down the street, you would have heard this form of greeting, charis, and it meant grace. Well, maybe today we'd say charis, but we would mean have a good day. <laughs> and that's what God is saying to you, have a good eternity. And he says, I've fixed it so you can. Now, a lot of folk could say to me, have a good day, they don't contribute to it in any way other than just say that, and it's nice. But God's made an arrangement whereby you can have a good eternity, and it's by the grace of God. And then peace always follows. It never precedes. It never leads the parade. I see this on many bumpers today, and I hear a great deal in this world about peace. And it's a religious word. Chorus comes out of the Greek world. But peace comes out of the religious world. It's a Hebrew form of greeting, shalom. Jerusalem is the city of peace. Jerusalem, the city of peace. And it's never been that. It's been the city of war. And right now, it's really a thorn in the flesh of the world. They don't know what to do with it. But when the Prince of Peace is ruling there, there will be peace in the world. But today, there is a peace that comes through the grace of God. And that is, as Paul stated in Romans, being justified by faith. We have peace with God. Now, this is a peace that a sinner can have with a holy God because Christ died for us, paid the penalty, and now God in grace can save you, not by you bringing God something, because, frankly, you haven't anything to bring to him. I have never brought anything to him except sin. Then he's paid a penalty that he can receive me as a sinner, can receive you. And then you can enjoy and know in this world of turmoil, this world of tension, 
this world of trial, this world that's so filled today with things that are wrong, you can know the peace of God in your heart. That is, the peace of God that he gives to those that trust Jesus Christ as Savior. These are two important words. Now the peace, the grace and peace is from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask a theological question here. Isn't Paul a Trinitarian? Doesn't he believe in that Trinity? Why doesn't he say from the Holy Spirit? Well, because the Holy Spirit was already over there in Philippi and dwelling believers. So Paul's quite accurate, as you can see. Now, verse 3, and we come here to this very wonderful section where he reveals his tender feelings for the Philippians. And this is from verse 3 through verse 11. Now, will you notice it? I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. It's wonderful to have a church and to feel that way about them. And actually, the quite literal of this is, the better translation would be, all my remembrance of you causes me to thank God. <laughs> Anything he'd think about them. Every time anybody mentioned Philippi, Paul would just thank God for them. That's quite wonderful, by the way. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. This is something that is hard to define. Now, every now and then, I get a letter from some organization that wants me to do something, you know, or are asking me for something, and that's perfectly legitimate. But they begin the letter by saying, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. I'm not always sure that they feel that way about me because of the fact that, you know, they're sort of preparing you for what is coming. But it is wonderful to be the kind of a person or be in a church where you can say, well, every time I think of that church, I just thank my God for it. That is something that I think that is quite wonderful. And if Paul hadn't said anything else here about his relationship to this church, this would have been enough, friend to reveal how wonderful they were. He just didn't go around saying this about the other churches because you look and see. He never said that to the Galatians. He didn't say it to the Corinthians either. He's not through now. He says always, <laughs> not just sometimes, but always in every prayer of mine. That is, every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy. Now, the you all makes it very clearly, again, that Paul is speaking now to all of the saints that are in the church, not to Syntyche's group or not to Euodice's group or not to this little clique or that little clique, but he's writing to the total church there, the corporate body in the local church, he says, for you all. Now, he uses that expression again, verse 7, you all. And then verse 8, you all. And he uses it quite frequently. Now, the very interesting thing, and I guess I'll have to say this, and you folk that are listening to me north of the Mason-Dixon line, 
You listen very carefully now, because this is a great theological point I'm making. On the basis of this, I assume that Paul, I can tell you where he came from. I assume he was a southerner, because he says, you all, and we are the folk that use that expression, only we don't use it for singular. We use it for plural, that is, most of us do. And then I can even tell you what state he came from. Because over in Romans, he says, I reckon. And you know who says that. Texans say that. So I can tell you where Paul came from. He came from the South. He came from Texas. He uses you all and says, I reckon. Now, friends, I recognize that I have now given you a great theological point that probably you wouldn't be able to pick up anywhere else. But we're delighted be able to pass this on to you. But I think maybe we better go to something a little bit more important. Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. It was Benkel that said, the sum of the epistle is, I rejoice, rejoice ye. And actually, I think that that could be put on a placard. And this would be a good time to have a protest. And the protest would be to every church now. Paul says, I rejoice, you rejoice. This is something for believers. He's saying to them, you rejoice. Now, when you find out where Paul is, you can see how important that is. He's going to tell us again and again, I rejoice. You know where he is? Well, he's over in Rome in prison. He's probably not in the Mamertine prison at this time, but he's in a place equally as disagreeable. And I never felt in that day the Romans went in with the idea of trying to discipline prisoners. They were punishing them, which was quite accurate. That was always the thought until we got this new idea in our day, which is entirely incorrect. And it is the thing that's produced lawlessness on the outside. Why, today we're becoming a nation of criminals. Why? Because we're trying to make criminals on the inside of prison as nice and sweet as those on the outside. And by the way, we've just about accomplished that. But it's certainly put more criminals on the outside than we've ever had on the inside of prisons today. Now, we have here this very wonderful thing, rejoice. And I've never felt like, just because this word occurs 19 times, that we should say that this is the joy epistle. Well, I felt like, if you're going to pick out the word that occurs more than any other word, take the name of Jesus Christ. His name appears over 40 times in the epistle, and he's the center of this epistle, and he's the one that is the very source of joy and Therefore, the emphasis should be put upon him and not joy. We're trying today to produce joy in the church by external means. You know, we have a program that we tell folk, come, you will enjoy it. We have a banquet, and folk always enjoy a banquet, so we have joy, we say. But that actually is not joy, because joy does not depend on outward circumstances. It depends upon the inward condition of the individual. It depends on what is a common expression today, a proper attitude. What's your attitude toward life? If you are complaining and whining today about your 
lot in life, why, certainly, you're not going to have joy in your life. You may be able to go to a church banquet and have a little fun, but you're not going to have joy. But when you and I get to the place where we find ourselves in the center of the will of God, and regardless of where it is, we know we're in God's will, then there'll be joy in our lives. So Paul could say here, I make requests for you all, and I do it with joy. Paul said the time of prayer was not a time of, you know, of, oh boy, we've got to go through this ordeal again of praying for these individuals. Paul says, why, this was just a lot of fun for me to pray for you Philippians, and in jail it brought joy to my heart. Now, he's going to not only make requests for them, but he's very grateful for certain things. And here he says, "...for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now." For your fellowship in the gospel. Now we've come to a very important word in this epistle. I have spoken of it before, but actually I've not enlarged upon it at all. What is the word fellowship? What does it really mean? Now, I don't think that it is a word that even in the church today is used properly. And certainly the world has taken this up, and they use it a great deal today. They talk about fellowship. I think I've told you about years ago I went down to Huntington Beach once a year, sometimes twice at either Christmas or Easter time, and spoke at a Rotary Club luncheon. A doctor was chairman of the committee down there, the program committee, and he invited me to come down and give them both barrels, and I generally did because that was always been my method. And we feel like, at least I feel very definitely, that that's my business. I have been asked to give an illustrated message of mine on the seven churches. If I'd leave out the gospel and present it, why, I could go to certain places across the country. Well, I don't do it because that's not my business. My business is to give out the Word of God. And when I give an illustrated message, that's the purpose of it. And when I go to speak at a luncheon like this, I don't go there to entertain the fellas. However, I hope I, you know, give them a few laughs, but that's not my purpose. I go there to give the Word of God. But they had up over the speaker's table food, fun, fellowship. And I want to say that I didn't think they should have bragged about any one of the three. The food was, well, it was embalmed chicken with peas big as bullets. And then they had fun, was corny jokes like I tell. And the fellowship was patting somebody on the back saying, Hello, Bill, how's business? Or how's tricks? But that's not fellowship. Actually, fellowship, the Greek word is koinonia. And it means to share the things of Christ. That's what it means. And there are three elements that must enter into it. Spiritual communication is one thing. And second, there must be sympathetic cooperation. And third, there must be sweet communion. Those are the three things that enter into fellowship. First, spiritual communication. That is sharing the things of Christ. And second, sympathetic cooperation. Then we work together for Christ. That's the reason when Paul used the word 
fellowship, he could be talking about Bible reading, Bible study. He could be speaking about prayer. He could be speaking about celebrating the Lord's Supper or actually taking up an offering. All of those Paul called koinonia, a fellowship. You see, sharing the things of Christ. First would be a spiritual communication. We would be sharing the great truths concerning Christ, as I hope we're doing right now. And then, second, sympathetic cooperation. We could work together. And then the result would be sweet communion. You and I would be partners. And that's what we want you to be in this broadcast, that we might have koinonia, we might have fellowship in the Word of God today, getting the Word of God out. And I don't think there's anything quite like it. Now, that word will be before us again. But Paul says that this church now is having fellowship with him. He had communicated to them the gospel and the Word of God. And they had had sympathetic cooperation because they had shared with Paul. They had sent to him, he'll tell us in the fourth chapter again and again, they had ministered to him of physical things. And then when they were together, they had had sweet communion. How wonderful it is. Now, Paul says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. You remember Paul went to that city and he had this wonderful fellowship. Now he says here, being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, let me say this, that I was a very poor boy when I went away to college. The fact of the matter is, my dad had died, killed in an accident in a cotton gin in southern Oklahoma. And my mother took my sister and myself. I was 14 years of age, and we went to Nashville, Tennessee, and I had to go to work. I had to get a permit in that day for a boy 14 years old to work. And I worked for a wholesale hardware concern. I got the mail of a morning. I'd get up at 5 o'clock, and I'd go and get the mail and take it in and sort it and have it on the desk of all of the officials in each department of this great concern. Fourteen-year-old boy. Actually, there was no place for him. I should have been in school. I wanted to go to school. And so I had the privilege later on of going back due to the fact I had a wonderful friend. He acted as a father to me. He had a son that was a drunkard, and he wanted him to get a college education. And the boy didn't. And so he helped me and got me a job to tell the truth. I had to work. But I was able to go to college. And every year, though, I thought it would be my last year. I never thought God would ever see me through. I had very little faith. And then when I came to my last year, the Depression had come. Many of you may be able to recall 1928 and 29. They were bad years. And I couldn't get a job. I'd had no money. And when I got my degree in the morning program, I went back to my room. I sat down on the bed. My roommate came in and said, Mac, what in the world's the matter with you? You look like you lost your best friend. Well, I said, I'm through. I said, here I've graduated from college. I can't go to seminary. 
I don't know what to do. I haven't a job. I'm going out in the morning and hitchhike a ride back up to my where I lived in Nashville, Tennessee, and that's it. I'm through. And I had very little faith, as you can see. Well, a telephone rang, and they said it was for me, and I went down the hallway, and it was two dear ladies. That is, one of them was on the phone, of course, and she wanted to know if I could come by and see them that afternoon. They were with us. They owned a plantation down in Mississippi. They were really well-to-do folk. And so they said, could I come by? I never dreamed what they had in mind because they'd already given me a necktie for graduation. I thought that was it. Well, I went by there that afternoon, and when I went by, I went in, I knocked on the door, and rang the doorbell, a maid came to the door, went in, sat down in the living room, and then in a minute one of them came in, and they were dear little ladies, but they looked like they walked out of before the Civil War. They had one of these high collars on and a big cameo pin right out in front. Some of you ladies and remember that. That really takes you back. And they dressed like that, but they were lovely folk, and they were really well-to-do. So they came in, and we had a stilted conversation there for a minute or two because, very frankly, we talked about the weather, and we talked about me graduating, and they congratulated me. Then one of them said, well, I know that you want to get on your way, that you'll be leaving tomorrow. And so one of them got up and came over to me, and Tears came down her eyes, and she handed me an envelope, and she says, I'm giving you this in memory of my husband so that you can continue to go to school. And then she went and sat down. The other one got up, and she came over and handed me an envelope and said, I'm giving you this in memory of my husband. And so after that, we had a little more conversation. I thanked them, and they said, we know you want to go. So I got out of there as quickly as I could, and I went around the corner as quick as I could so I could open the envelopes. Nobody see me. I opened the first one. There was a check in it for $250. I opened the second one, and there was a check in it for $250. I wonder if any of you folk can remember how much $500 really was during the Depression. I was a millionaire. <laughs> That's what I was. And when I went back and told my roommate what had happened, he said, well, I guess now you can buy a bus ticket. I said, are you crazy? I'm going out and hitchhike because I'm going to arrive in Nashville with $500. And friends, another $100 was added to that from an unknown source. At least I didn't think I was going to get it. I taught in a Sunday school, and they'd had a banquet for me that night, a farewell banquet, and they gave me a check for $100. I had $600. That's what I went to seminary with the next year. And you know, that night at the banquet, somebody gave me this verse, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that's been my life verse ever since. Now, will you look at that verse with me for just a moment here? He says... He will perform it. And he begins, however, by saying, being confident, it's really causative, since I am confident of this very thing. Paul knew what he was talking about. And he says that he that hath begun will perform. Now, the word for perform means carry through. He'll consummate it. And the day of Jesus Christ 
You and I today are not living in the day of the Lord, and we're not living in the day of the Old Testament. We're not living in the day of the millennium, and we're not living in the day of eternity. We're living in the day of Jesus Christ that'll be consummated when he comes to take his church out of this world. And the Holy Spirit has sealed you and me until the day of redemption, Paul said. You will recall in Ephesians, this is it. And that until then, you can count on God to consummate. Whatever he intends for you, he's going to see it through. My friend, that's the most wonderful thing that I know of in the Bible. Now, will you look at that right now? Is this practical for you and me? Will you listen to me now very carefully? And I do not know who I'm talking to, and I do not know what your circumstance is. But I have a notion. I can say this and be accurate. God has brought you up to the present moment, hasn't he? Every one of you. Oh, I see everybody's saying yes. God has brought you up to this very moment. And you can say, thank God he's led me up to the present moment. Well, friends, why do you think he's going to let you down? You think now he's going to turn loose of you? I thought that. Oh, I went through college. I never enjoyed it. I never had joy because I never believed he could do it. I just went each year and, oh, my doleful, I graduated. Graduation was a happy experience for all of us. I could see these rich kids, their parents throwing their arms around them. Nobody there to throw arms around me. Don't misunderstand. I'm not whining, but I thought I was through. I thought that this is it. And I had a heavenly father. That day, that put his arm around me, and he said, I'll see you through. Wonderful to have a heavenly Father. And I want to say this to you today. That has been the comfort since I have had cancer in the lungs to know i got a heavenly Father. And he's a good doctor, too. He's a great physician. He said that whatever I've got in store for you, I'm going to see it through until the day of the rapture. So I'm in his hands. This is a great verse. Oh, I have held on to this in a dark night when the storm outside was just beating against my little barking. I thought I was through. <laughs> but he said, you're not, I'll not let you down. This is a great verse. Let's move on. Verse 7, even as it is meet, and that's the old Elizabethan word, even as it is right, even as it is right for me to think this of you all. Here we are again, you all. I hope you folk understand what he means. He means everybody. Because I have you in my heart. Oh, isn't that a wonderful place to carry your Christian friends even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers. Now, here is that same word, koinonia, only it's intensified now with a preposition soon, which just means that they were just all wrapped up. As you remember, that lovely woman, Abigail, said to David, you are wrapped up in the bundle of life with God. 
And that's what Paul really is saying here. As far as being partners in the gospel, you and I just wrapped up together in this great enterprise. You know, here in Southern California, I'm having the greatest experience of my Christian ministry. And I'll tell you what it is. God has given to us certain friends, and I have a wonderful board here, the board that is back of the through the Bible, made up of some wonderful Christian businessmen that I've known over the years. And then we have some men of reference across the country. And these are friends, and there have been others. And They are just bound up in the bundle of life with us in this great enterprise of getting out the gospel. You're partakers of my grace. That grace that has saved me and enabled me to keep giving out the word, it's the same grace that has enabled them to be a partner that we couldn't carry it on without them. It's wonderful, friends, to be bound together like that. You see what I mean that now when I say that Here you have the tender feelings of the Apostle Paul for this church in Philippi, and he was closer to them than any others. It's wonderful to have Christian friends like this that they're sharing with you in the great enterprise. There is that sympathetic cooperation besides the spiritual communication. And then it always produces sweet communion. How wonderful it is. Now, he goes on, "...for God is my record, how greatly I long..." Now, notice this, "...I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ." Somebody says, shush, don't say that. Well, let's say it, because this is not a crude statement. When I read it like this one day, a dear little lady, sweet thing, I'm sure she'd never heard a bad word in her life, She came up to me. She says, Oh, Dr. McGee, don't read it like that. That's crude. Well, I said, that's the way it is in the Bible, and that's the way that I think it should be read, just as it is. Now, may I stop a moment and say this to you, that this is really a very marvelous statement. I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Now, this actually means, of course, tender feelings if you please. It means tender feelings. And I long after you all. And it means the tender feelings of Jesus Christ. This is something that's quite precious. Now, it's good psychology. I was speaking in our Thursday night Bible study years ago. And at that time, we had attending it a man who was a psychology teacher out at USC. He was a very fine Christian, by the way. And he always helped me with my psychology, generally after I'd made the statement, though. And then he enabled me to be a little more definite about it the next time. And I was mentioning the fact about this particular expression, that Paul was speaking of the tender feelings. And afterward, he said this to me. He said, you know, the average person thinks today that everything he does is because he's thought it over, that he's very smart. And he touched me on the head, and he said, you know, very little really happens up there. You can see the man knew me. He says, very little happens up in your head. 
He says that is really a very marvelous telephone exchange. He said that that comes in over your sensory nervous system, over the axons and dendrites, up through the synaptical connections from the hand, a message that goes up to the brain. He says, for instance, you touch a hot stove, and then immediately the message goes up to the brain and says, you crazy fool, why don't you take your finger off of that? It'll get burned. And immediately there is a transfer made over to a motor neuron. And the message goes down over different synaptical connections, and it says to the finger down there, you better get off of this. You're going to get burned. And you just take it off quick as that. And you don't think... Somebody says, well, I did that without thinking. Actually, that's true, but there was a connection made up in the brain. A great many folk drive like that. They drive without thinking. I think that's quite obvious. He says that is what really takes place in the brain. But he says when you were a young man, first time you saw your wife, do you remember the feeling that you had? He says, where did that take place, in your brain? He said, no, that took place down inside of you. And then he pointed toward my tummy. He says, that is where you're motivated. Why, he says, if you were in a burning building, somebody said fire, why, he says, it doesn't take place up there in the brain, but he says, down there, a few glands that start working, one says, he says, you better get in gear. And he says, before long, you got out of that building without even thinking about it. What happened? Well, the thing that happened was that you're motivated down there. And he says, down here is where you live and move and have your being. So here, this is a very wonderful thing. This speaks of those tender feelings, the most wonderful thing. And Paul is saying here, I long after you, not because you've given me something. It's not something he's thought over. This is not mental. This is something that has to do with his emotions. And he says, I deeply long for you. This is a wonderful expression. Then in verse 9 he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now he speaks here that their love might abound in knowledge and in judgment. And the word for judgment is discernment. Now, there's more silly thinking today about this word love. Very frankly, I get letters like this. This one came to me from Pompano Beach. And this party writes, Last night I heard your program over radio station here. You sure gave me the surprise of my life as to what you said about the leaders of this nation. You also said that certain evangelists spread damnable heresies. Maybe I heard you wrong. Anyway, doesn't Jesus say in his holy word, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you? And may I say to you, the Lord Jesus had some very harsh things to say about the religious rulers of his day. He said that you are of your father the devil, and the works of your father you will do. And he even talked about their mother. He says, you're a generation of vipers. In other words, your snake is your mother. I don't think you could be any harsher than that. And I certainly wasn't that extreme. And this part has certainly misunderstood me. But coming up with that little verse, love your enemies. If you want to know the truth, I'm having difficulty loving my friends. 
Some of them are not lovely, but they're wonderful friends. And we're to love believers, and some of the believers are a little difficult to love. And they are the ones that I think we're to love. Now, Paul says, let your love abound, but more and more let it abound in knowledge and in all judgment or in all discernment. You be sure who you love. Now, I've prayed for years. When I used to drive in on the freeway to the church in downtown Los Angeles, I would pray. I'd say, Lord, I'm going to meet some new people today. I don't know how to treat them. You do. There's some of them I can help. I can put my arm around them and help them. But some of them, if I put my arm around them, they'll put a knife in my back. Help me to be able to discern the ones I can help, the ones that I should express love to, and the ones I shouldn't. Your love is to be expressed with discernment and with real judgment, by the way, and with real knowledge. Don't run around and say today you love everybody, because if you say that, you're one of these do-gooders that we read about. This old boy had been going to missions for years. He got tired of hearing that. He needed to hear the Word of God that he was a sinner, that needed to be saved. And then he becomes a child of God through faith in Christ. We need to be very careful today about who we love, my friend. That's what Paul is saying to these. I saw this bumper sticker the other day. be honest with you, I didn't like it. It says, love your neighbor, but be careful. May I say to you, it was meant the wrong way, I'm sure. But I would say it's good if you'll take it the right way. Be careful. There are some neighbors that will put a knife in your back. And there's some neighbors, oh, they'll be wonderful to you. And I would like for you to note another example of this. And I lift it out of my own personal experience. When I first went to downtown Los Angeles, I learned that every Sharpie took advantage of a new preacher. And therefore, the individual would try, you know, get to him, shall I say. In fact, every kind of a ruse that was imaginable. And I used to warn new members of the staff that that's what would happen to them for the first few weeks until they learned how to deal with folk in a downtown church in a great city filled with all kinds of people. Well, this happened to me one Sunday morning. One of the personal workers came to me and said, There's a man that came forward, and I've been dealing with him, and he wants you to talk to him. He wants you to deal with him. Well, you know, I thought, my, isn't that wonderful? He wants the pastor to talk to him. So I went, sat down by the side of him. He was not dressed too well, but he seemed very interested. And I got my Bible, and I gave him the verses that you do for salvation. My, he just... He had to take my Bible and read one or two of them. My, he seemed interested. So when I finished presenting the plan of salvation, I asked him if he had really accepted Christ. And he had. Great crocodile tears came down his eye. We got down on our knees and prayed. And then we got up, and I made the mistake of asking him a question. I should, from then on, have kept quiet. But I said, by the way, how are you getting along? Well... You know, that could mean most anything. Well, he told me. He said, well, he says, you know, Dr. McGee said, I don't want to, you know, to bother you with my trouble. Oh, and I encouraged him. I said, oh, yes, go ahead. And he said, it's embarrassing for me to tell you this. Well, 
I was very naive then. I was a babe in the wood. And he said, you know, I have been stopping down here at a certain hotel. I hadn't heard of the hotel before, but found out later it was more or less of a flop house. And he said, they have my suitcase, and I don't have money to pay my bill, and I can't get my suitcase. And I want to be leaving town, and I am so distressed, I can't get a job. Well, you know, I then asked him the question, how much did he owe? He said, seven dollars. Well, now, you've just led a man supposedly to the Lord. And all he needs is seven dollars. So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to give him seven dollars. So I gave him seven dollars, and he thanked me profusely and said he would pay me back, you know, and he left. And I went out feeling good. By that time, everybody had left. My wife was waiting in the car. I got in the car, and she wanted to know what was the delay, and I told her. And I just felt, you know, I felt Good. I was just oozing goodness in every direction. I told her what I'd done. I'd given this man seven dollars. Well, she was a little skeptical, but not too much. Thought it was a good thing. And so, I suppose it was two or three weeks later, I picked up the morning paper, and in the morning paper was a picture of a man that looked very familiar. I looked at it carefully, and sure enough, it was that man. And the fact of the matter is, it was a good picture of him. And then I read the item underneath. He'd been arrested, by the way. And the thing he'd been arrested on, he was a vagrant. And he had been in Los Angeles for six months, had not worked, but had lived pretty well. And he told in this article, he's interviewed by a reporter, of how he lived. He said, you know, I just go to a church and talk to the pastor and tell them my story, and they always help me. And fact of the matter is, he says, you know, preachers are the biggest saps they are in the world. You know, I guess the fellow was right. He was right in my case. That fellow had my seven dollars. And I called Dr. Bob Schuler, who was then at Trinity Methodist Church, I asked him if he had had him. Oh, yes, said he'd been forward down at his church. I said, did you give him $7? He said, oh, no. And he knew me pretty well. He said, Vernon, I've been in downtown Los Angeles a long time. And I know this crowd. He said, you are new, they're working you. He said, you better be careful. So I went back to Philippians 1.9, and this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. So from then on, friends, no one ever got to me for $7 to get their suitcase out of the hotel. In fact, I've had them tell some, oh, terrible stories. In fact, at Christmas time, they'd come out for a funeral to bury their dear dead mother. And they had just spent everything at the funeral, and they couldn't get back home, and they were hungry. And I just looked at them and grinned, you know, and told them, if you're hungry, we'll sure buy you a meal. And they were taken back by that. Many of them found out they weren't hungry all of a sudden. Others actually, I guess, were, but all they got from me was a meal. Why? Because, my friend, let me say this, 
very carefully today, all we should express love. And certainly believers should love one another. But you better do it with a little knowledge and a great deal of discernment. That's what Paul says. That's what the Word of God says today. Now, don't tell me, as this party has in this letter that they sent to me, that Jesus said that we're to love everybody. Now, he made it very clear in his life that there were some folk that were the children of the devil, and their mother happened to be a snake. And he didn't express much love for them. He died for them, but they would have to take a step of faith toward him. Now, the Bible love does not slop over on every side. I think we need to recognize that in this day when there's so many silly things that are being said today by a lot of sentimental people that talk it, but I don't see them producing it today. Now, there are some people you and I should lavish our love upon. And there's some folk, my friend, that we need to be very careful about. Now, let me move on. Verse 10 says, "...that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ." Now, here's another important verse that needs some explanation, because actually what Paul means when he says that ye may approve things that are excellent, he says that you need to try the things that differ. And this has to do, I think, with the Lord's will for your life. There are times that you come to a decision, and there probably are two routes that you can go. Which route should you go? Well, very frankly, there are times you won't know. And if you think the Lord's going to put up a green light or have an angel appear to you at night, I think you're wrong. He never did that for anyone, even in the Scripture at all. The thing is that he expects you to use a little consecrated and concentrated gumption. And therefore, we need to try the things that differ. A man was telling me about, I think it was in his own business, that there were two routes open to him. And he said he tried one of them, and it didn't work. Although he said, I prayed about it. And then he says, when I saw that didn't work, I came back to the crossroads And he says, you know, the interesting thing is, I sure knew what the Lord's will was then. The other one didn't work, and there's only one open. And he says, I followed that one, and it was it. God says, try the things that differ. And this idea today that the Lord's going to flash a green light for you at every crossroads, I think you will find that a big mistake. Now, we find here that you may be sincere And that word sincere is a very interesting word. It's sinaceres, a Latin word which means without wax. You see, when the Romans started out, they were a rather brutal people, but a very strong people. And they destroyed a great many of the art treasures of Greece in many places, Asia Minor. You can see examples of that over there today. I was interested in looking at several temples over there. And the Temple of Diana actually was a beautiful thing from an architectural standpoint, but it was apparently right near the headquarters of Satan, for that matter. But the art troves of Greece, many of them were broken up. 
And so when the Romans came to the place in their culture, they appreciated this, they began to gather them up, many of them broken. So if there was a crack in a stature, why, a man that was a dishonest art dealer would take wax and fill it in so that you couldn't even tell that it was broken. And he would sell it as a genuine, you know, perfect example. A man would buy it, take it up to his villa in North Italy, and put it out in the garden and walk out the next day. And it's a hot day, and lo and behold, the wax is running down out of a crack in that lovely vase or whatever it was that he bought, some statue probably. Well, then the reputable art dealers began to put on their materials sinuseries without wax. That is genuine and that there'd be no wax put in it at all. And they guaranteed it like that. Now, Paul is saying that. Don't be a phony. Be genuine. Be real today. And getting back to the last verse, don't go around patting everybody on the back, saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah, and telling them how much you love them when you're going to stick a knife in their back the minute that they leave town. That is the thing that Paul is talking about here. He says that you may be sincere and without offense. Now, a better word is blameless. Now, you cannot be without offense. I do not believe if you preach the Word of God today that you can be without offense. And that's the reason you ought to pray for your preacher if he's a Bible preacher. And you ought to defend him for the very simple reason that If he's giving out the Word of God, he'll do it with offense. Some people will be offended at it. I had the funeral several years ago of a movie star. And, of course, all that crowd came. They didn't appreciate what I said. I can tell you they were antagonistic. I even got telephone calls from some of that crowd. Why? Because my message was offensive. As one TV newsman, though, when he gave the report... He said, Hollywood heard something today they'd never heard before. And I understand he was a Christian. Well, may I say to you, pray for your preacher and defend him if he's giving out the Word of God. He'll not do it without offense, but he can be blameless. Blameless, make sure that what they accuse you of, you're not guilty of. When I first came pastoring downtown Los Angeles, I met Dr. Jim McGinley at that time in Chicago. And he said to me, how do you like being pastor in downtown Los Angeles? I said, well, I certainly am enjoying it. It's a marvelous opportunity, and the crowds are coming and all that. But I said, I find out I can't defend myself. I hear reports about me that are terrible. And Dr. McGinnis says, that's all right. He says, just make sure that none of them are true. (laughs) Be blameless. You can be blameless but you won't be without offense till the day of Christ. Now, the day of Christ, again, has reference to his coming for his church. We've had that now. This is the second time. That is the rapture of the church. And a child of God should walk in the light of that all the time. Now, he says, verse 11, "...being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God." have the fruits of righteousness, which, of course, are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit producing fruit in the life of the believer, which is love, joy, peace, long-surfing, etc., and etc. 
Now, verse 12, "...but he says, I would ye should understand, brethren..." Now, he's being very emphatic with them. "...I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel." Now, you will recall that when Paul was arrested and the church in Philippi learned it, they sent a message over there of sympathy. And I have a notion that they've said something like this, "'Oh, poor brother Paul, we feel so sorry for you. Now, your great missionary journeys that you were making throughout the Roman Empire curtailed, and you're in prison, and the gospel's not going out.'" Paul says, "'Look, I want you to know that the gospel is going out. And the things that have happened to me haven't happened to curtail the gospel, but have actually happened for the furtherance of the gospel.'" And now he makes it very clear what he means by that. There are here given to us two reasons why that it's happened for the furtherance of the gospel. He says, "...so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace." And that means Caesar's court. Well, quite literally, it means the Roman patricians. These were the ones that guarded the apostle. We're told over in Acts 28:16, "...when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him." Now, Paul was chained to a member of the praetorian guard. These were the patricians. Actually, they were members of Caesar's household. Now, here is something that's happened. When Paul was converted... The Lord Jesus said he's to appear before kings, the great people of the earth. Well, he hadn't appeared before them up to this time, largely to just the common, ordinary, vegetable variety of citizen in the Roman Empire. Now, of all things, he has members of the royalty chained to him. My friends, can you have a better arrangement than that, to have your congregation chained to you? So that I imagine that on many occasions, a Roman soldier would say to the man who relieved him, said, "'Boy, am I glad to see you. This man's about to make me a Christian.'" Well, some of them did become Christians. In fact, many of them did. Now, Paul says, "'I'm accomplishing the very thing that Christ said I would accomplish. It's for the furtherance of the gospel. The gospel now is going into the very palace of Caesar.'" And it hasn't happened to curtail the gospel at all. Now, our study today, friends, brings us back here into the first chapter of Philippians. And we're putting in at verse 14. I hope many of you have the notes and outlines. If not, we have a set here for you. There's no charge for that. The books that we offer, there is a charge for that. That is, we ask people to send in a gift for the radio. And we believe that that's fair and proper because we depend upon the gifts of listeners to continue this program. Last time, we noticed that Paul said that the things that had happened to him had happened for the furtherance of the gospel rather than the hindrance of the gospel. Because I'm sure that when Epaphroditus brought this letter and gift from the Philippians, it was a note of deep sympathy and love for Paul. And they were distressed that 
the gospel apparently was not going out. That was their conclusion that since Paul was in prison. Now, Paul says, instead of it being hindered, actually it's going to the exact places that the Lord said it would go to. He said, I'm in prison in Rome, but there's chain to me. And that was the method. Every day there'd be a changing of the guard, and a new man would be chained to the apostle Paul. And they let him do that rather than put him in prison. He was in his own hired house. And I would say that the surroundings at that time were not too uncomfortable because, after all, this man chained to him as a member of the Praetorian Guard, and that meant he was a patrician. He belonged to the upper class in Rome. Only Italians belonged to it. Now, Paul has chained to him for several hours each day a member of the royalty. What do you think Paul talked about? I imagine they talked about the weather. Probably the man asked him about what the charge was against him and probably asked him about what conditions were over in the east. How was it in Asia? He'd heard about it, and probably as a soldier, he would be sent out to that area. However, very few of these guards ever left the Roman area. And Paul now ministers to him. Paul is able to say to this man, I have something to tell you. I'm in bonds because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that now, as the Lord had said it first, he had said, This man, Saul of Tarsus, will appear before kings and rulers. Well, he's made it now. He's peering before them. And therefore, it was falling out. And then there was something else here. Notice verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And you see that in the church. There were many men who had loved to have gone out as witnesses. fact of the matter is, they would have. But having heard the apostle Paul, and I think Paul, though not very impressive to look at, I think to hear him would have been very impressive. And he spoke in the power of the Spirit. And I'm sure that many folks said, well, look, Paul is out going up and down Roman roads preaching the gospel, and he does it so much more effectively than I can do it, so I'll not be going out. He felt like, as many folk feel today, I'm not worthy, I'm not competent, I'm not trained. And as a result, why, there were not many going up and down preaching the gospel. Now, word goes out to the churches in the Roman Empire that Paul the Apostle is at Rome in prison, and he can no longer go out as a witness for Jesus Christ. I am confident that literally at this time, hundreds of men, maybe thousands, hit the Roman roads. They hit the pavement, and they started out as a full of brush man would today, or Avon calling, or something like that. They really moved out and went even from Doa to Doa and began to witness for Christ. And Paul says here, very frankly, many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds. They say, Paul can't go, I'll go. And many went out. So Paul can sit there in prison and say, well, I was out by myself with, of course, a few others. But now, literally, there are hundreds and maybe even thousands out 
preaching the gospel. He's being multiplied. So he says, what's happened to me has happened for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, I want to add a third reason. Paul doesn't mention it, but it certainly is true. And it is this, that we can only get this from the perspective of history. I'm sure Paul at that day, he may or may not have thought of it. He could have, but he certainly doesn't mention it. And it is this, that you and I today have four prison epistles that are the very choice epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, all marvelous. And we wouldn't have them if Paul hadn't been in prison. I'm sure the Lord might have worked out some other way, but this just happened to be the way he did it. So all of these are the reasons that it's happened for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, Paul lets us in on something that was tragic in that day, and it happens to be tragic in this day. And it is just simply this that, well, let me read it. Verse 15, "...some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill." Now, this to me, when I first began to read it and study it years ago, was unbelievable. I could not believe that the preaching of the gospel of Christ could be done in envy and strife. But friends, I've been at this a long time, and I've seen that one of the things that hurts the preaching of the gospel today, and I think probably as much as anything, One is envy, and the other is strife. Both of these today can hurt the gospel. Now, Paul is going to mention envy and strife again, in fact, several times in this epistle. And apparently, there were those that were going around preaching in envy and strife. They were envious, actually, of the apostle Paul. They felt like They couldn't quite do it like Paul. And one of the things that I think is the answer to envy is for every Christian to recognize that he has a gift. We all do not have the same gift. And the problem is that some men who do not have a gift are envious of those that have another gift. And gifts are to be exercised, as Paul, you remember, told the Corinthians. He says it's to be done in love. In fact, every gift is to be exercised in love. And when that gift is exercised in love, it can never be exercised with the thought of, for instance, he says, love suffereth long, is kind. Love envieth not. You see, love never says, oh my, I wish I had your gift. The Lord sure shortchanged me. I wish I could do as you do. Well, my friend, we don't all have the same gift. And love, if your gift is exercised in love, well, you'll not envy somebody else. And it means something else. It boneth not itself, is not puffed up. And it's not a gift that says, well, look at me. I can sing, or I can preach, or I can teach. You never do that. You recognize that this is a gift of God. And as Paul put it very plainly and bluntly, he said, what do you have that you didn't receive? 
everything you've got today. Friends, God gave it to you. But here was some going out, and they were preaching Christ of envy. Envy, you know, what it really means, I don't think much of you. And pride says, what do you think of me? <laughs> That's the difference between pride. And both of them are something we are warned against. You remember in the book of Proverbs, it was pride that we were warned against. Now, here it's envy in this epistle. One of the great sins in the church. In fact, envy and strife, and the word strife is quite an interesting word here. Actually, this word strife is a word that has to do with eris. It comes from that word stirring up. There were these spirits, actually demons of that day, and they stirred up strife. And you find envy and strife that causes so much problem today. I would say these two little fellows hurt the church more than anything else. I don't think it's liquor and alcohol and drugs on the outside that hurts the church. I think it's envy and strife on the inside that hurts the church. And he says, also some preach Christ of goodwill. Now, what's Paul's attitude toward that? He's in prison. He can't answer them. Well, he says, the one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. They preach Christ, but not sincerely. They do it actually to try to show up Paul. And Paul, what would be his reaction to that? And does that find a place today? Well, notice this first here. He says, "...the other of love, knowing that I'm set for the defense of the gospel." Now, what about these two? Paul says, "...what then, notwithstanding every way?" That is, in either case, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice. Yea, he says, I will rejoice. Paul says, the important thing is that Christ be preached. Now, I think it's tragic that Christ is preached in envy and strife. And all you have to do is look about you today, and you'll find that he's preached that way many times. But you can rejoice that Christ is being preached. Sometimes folks say to me, because I've been a little rough, I guess, on female preachers. I used to carry on a battle here in Southern California with them, and they all said they prayed for me. And, of course, they prayed that I'd be lenient on female preachers. But as I said on several occasions, some of these women are preaching Christ better than the average male preacher is preaching them. And what is my position? Why I rejoice. Thank God Christ is being preached. Dr. Ironside tells the story of walking through a park up in Oakland, California, many years ago, and a woman was there preaching, and his brethren friend said to him, My, isn't it a shame that this woman is here preaching? Dr. Ironside says, It's a shame that there's not some man to take her place. That is the problem. Thank God that Christ was being preached. That's the important thing. And when the Word of God is given out, we can rejoice in it. Now, there are a great many folk today that are getting concerned about home Bible classes. Well, I'm rejoicing in them because sometimes some of them go off on a tangent, but not any more so than the churches go off or that the radio preachers go off for that matter. 
And we can rejoice that the Word of God is being taught today. That's the important thing. Paul has given us a tremendous example here, as you can see. He says, "...the one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, and the other of love, knowing that I'm set for the defense of the gospel." Now, the interesting thing is that though Christ be preached, not sincerely, people get saved. You see, God honors His Word, not a man or an organization. I think we need to recognize that today, and I wish more and more people do that. I have people that write in personally, and they write into our radio ministry, and they're so gracious and kind in saying things. But friends, if there's any blessing that can possibly come even from this small voice today, the Spirit of God is the only one that can bring blessing. We need to recognize that. And he can only bless as the Word of God is given out. And that's what we want to do is to give out the Word. Now, Paul says he'll rejoice, he does rejoice, and he will rejoice. And if Paul's going to do that, I'm going to join with him and rejoice. Now, verse 19. He says, "...for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer." Now, when he says salvation here, I think he means his physical deliverance from prison. I think that that's the thing he's speaking of in this particular case. And the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, he says here, through your prayer. And I'd emphasize that. Somebody said, why did you ask everybody to pray for you when you had cancer? Didn't you know that God would heal you? You go to him in prayer and, you know, and that type of thing. Oh, my friends, the Bible makes it clear that God hears and answers prayer of his people. And Paul recognizes that. He says, through your prayer, I'll be delivered. And we need today to ask God's people to pray for us. And the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's the only way you and I'll get that supply that we need. It won't get through to us except through prayer. Now, verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Now, Paul says, I don't want to be ashamed here in my witness. And I don't want to be ashamed when I come into the presence of Christ. Now, John mentions the fact that when Christ comes, takes his church out, that it's possible to be ashamed at his appearing. And I think more Christians ought to be concerned about that today. Now, I began years ago a prophetic congress in downtown Los Angeles that is spread over this entire area and is given a tremendous emphasis to prophecy. And this has been carried out across this country today. But I want to say this to you. There are too many people that are talking about the coming of the Lord that are not ready for the coming of the Lord. Oh, you say, aren't they saved? Yes, they're saved. But they're going to be shamed at his appearing. Their lives do not commend the gospel. Now, Paul says he didn't want to be ashamed at that time. Now, he puts down his philosophy for Christian living. As I said in each one of these chapters... There's a particular emphasis on Christian living. Chapter 1, it's the philosophy of Christian living. And that is all congealed and brought down 
to one verse in each chapter, whatever the subject is. What is Paul's philosophy? For me to live as Christ and to die, gain. The verb is actually not there, as you'll notice that the is is in italics. For me to live, what? Christ. And to die, gain. What is gain? More of the same. You'll have more of Christ. Now, you're going to be with him someday. And I'm coming to the conclusion, it took me a long time to get here, friends. The most important thing in my life as a Christian is to have the reality of Jesus Christ in my life. I find out that's not too popular today. People like to talk about that they're dedicated and they want to serve him and they want to do this and that. Well, the most important thing is to have fellowship with him. That your joy might be full. And then there'll be power. Then there'll be witness. Then there'll be these things. We are going after the end and forget all about the means. And by the way, the means does not always justify the end. We need to recognize that it has to be the right kind of means, and that is fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. For me to live, Christ, die, I'm going to go and be with him. You can't hurt a man like that. I wish I could come up to that level, and I wish I could say to you today, that's where I'm living today. Well, I can't say it, but I can say this to you, that is my goal. What a glorious one it is. Now he says here, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I choose, I know not. Paul said he didn't know. You and I don't know about the future. We don't know what a day will bring forth. Now he says, I'm in a strait betwixt too. Having a desire, and it could only be a desire. Paul says, I'd love to go and be with Christ right now. That'd be wonderful. To depart and be with Christ, that's the better of the two. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to stay down here when I had cancer. I wanted to stay, and I prayed God had let me stay. I always think of that story about in my Southland. It was in a black church, and the preacher asked one night, how many of you want to go to heaven? Everybody put up their hands except the little boy down front. That little boy didn't put up his hand, and the preacher said to him, said, Don't you want to go to heaven? He said, I sure do. But he said, I thought you were getting up a load for tonight, and he didn't want to go tonight. I feel the same way about it. I'm like Paul, to stay as needful, and I'd like to stay around for a while and give out the Word of God. I've just now got to the best part of my ministry. I don't want to leave it. I want to stay with it, and I'm asking God to let me stay How wonderful it is. Now, Paul says, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you for your furtherance and joy of faith. Paul says, I want to be a blessing to you, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Paul wanted to get out of prison. He wanted to come and be with them again. How wonderful. Now, verse 27, only let your conversation. Now, this means your way of life. Be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Oh, how God's people need to stand together. 
for the furtherance of the gospel. And in nothing, terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. If the church was what it should be in the world today, the world would listen. Now, verse 29, "...for unto you it's given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake." And friends, that is the high calling of Christ Jesus. If you get to the place where he lets you suffer for him, you've arrived. I'm not sure I want to be in that class, but he put me in it whether I wanted it or not. I'm not a very good example, but my, that is a token of his blessing, having the same conflict which he saw in me, now here to be in me. In other words, Paul says, I've arrived, I'm in this class, but that's a token of blessing, not a token that God has turned his face against you.